Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to know. Here's Sexplanations with Dr. Doe. Sexplanations episode 71. I'm Dr. Lindsay Doe, host of this broadcast and also <laughs> the YouTube channel. I'm a clinical sexologist. And what I like doing here is talking with cool people, people who I just enjoy conversations with so that we can have fun. Maybe sex will come up. Maybe not. Knowing Allison Moon, I hope it does. Probably. Hi. You, Hi. Uh, we have met in real life, but you are... What are we doing? We're Google chatting here, <laughs> New York to Montana. And I think that you are one of the sex ed greats. So usually I don't talk to experts, but you're, to me, a friend and an expert. So bonus for the podcast listeners. What <laughs> else should we know about you? Oh, golly gee. Yeah, uh, I'm a Libra. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm a sex educator. I specialize in talking to usually queer women about sexuality, but I find that a lot of people, regardless of whether they're queer women or sleep with queer women, find the information that I have to offer useful as well. Uh, so that's really fun for me. Um, and I also talk about polyamory. I write a bunch of different kinds of things. Uh, I've written a bunch of nonfiction books, but I also write fiction and, you know, stuff for actors to perform. I'm kind of all over the place and I love it. <laughs> I love it too. It's <laughs> amazing how much you accomplish. Thanks. Bravo. Yeah. So I have your book and on the cover it says, if you only plan to read one book about sex ever, make it this one. That's from Autostraddle. Mm -hmm. Um, Brilliant, right? The illustrations are brilliant. Your feedback is brilliant. It's got a kind of workbooky feel to it. So I'm going to second that autostraddle comment and encourage people to to check you out online and then in bookstores so exciting that i get to talk to you (laughs) yeah the book's called girl sex 101 i don't know if oh yes i didn't even say the title and i don't know all the titles of your other books will you give us the rundown of them all yeah so yeah girl sex 101 is my my flagship uh and then we've got uh bad bad dyke which is a collection of true stories from my sex life uh which i find i really enjoyed writing but i actually find that that's that's even a better way of educating some Sometimes is mm-hmm. hearing people's true stories. Uh, so that's Bad Dyke. Um, and then I have two novels about lesbian werewolves. Uh, I'm working on the third right now. Uh, those are the Tales of the Pack series. Um, and then I have a new book that's going to be coming out in the future, all about how to have casual sex without ruining anyone's life. So I'm very excited about that one. Oh my gosh, you're yeah. so cool. <laughs> hey, thanks. That's amazing. <laughs> I think you're cool too, Dr. Doe. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Oh, this is wonderful. Okay, well, so I want to talk about all sorts of things with you. The reason why I hoped you could do this episode in particular, though, is because it's reflecting back on the YouTube video about 22 sex topics. So it was kind of like at that point in the show, so many people were saying, can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to to give them an acknowledgement to say, yes, we're going to get there. Here's a real quick thing on each of those, though, Mm -hmm. in the meantime. And I I think that you, of all the people that I know, are a really capable person to to kind of tap each one of those or any topic really related to sex and be able to at least comment on it, even if that means saying, I don't know, or there will be more to be revealed. Yeah, I have opinions. That's for sure. Facts, <laughs> facts less so, but opinions, yes, very many of those. So hopefully between the two of those, I'll be able to work something out. Ooh, so fun. <laughs> okay, before we launch into it, I want to give a shout out to our 
Sexplanauts. So the patrons on Sexplanation's Patreon page, Kyle Milkey, um, who likes us to say, do your best and forget the rest, Donna Flint, Zip Wah, Paul the Millers, and Ben Trammell. All of you are so amazing. Thank you for making this conversation possible. All right. So, Allison Moon, what is your favorite sex topic, first of all? My favorite sex topic? Golly gee, that's already so big. Um, I love <laughs> t- I love talking about technique, right? I, I feel like a lot of people like to, when they're getting into something, something with somebody new, I think maybe that's an overachieving type thing in our Western culture, but I think it's really helpful to know a little bit about the thing that you want to do before you decide to do it. I mean, there's no, there's Mm. no experience like, or there's no, there's no education like experiencing it firsthand, but I do enjoy talking to people about what to expect, like what to expect when you're negotiating a spanking scene, what to expect when you're trying on your first strap on. Um, because I think that can really help people kind of calm down their brain hamsters a little bit and feel a little bit more relaxed and trying something new. That's super cool. <laughs> so technique, favorite topic, and your kind of troubleshooting or, or guidance for that mm-hmm. is setting out clear expectations of what could happen. Yeah, I mean, and what, why people like things, why people don't like things, how to decide if you like something, all the mm-hmm. stuff that kind of gets you feeling like you have a little bit more confidence before you've even stepped into that scenario, I think is really helpful. I'm, I'm a planner personally. So for me, I like to feel like I know what I'm going to get into. And then it allows me to feel a lot more free and a lot more safe in exploring the scene once I'm in it, if I already have a little bit of knowledge going in. That's br- beautiful. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Um, is there a topic that you feel needs to be addressed more? So it might not be your favorite, but it's something that you think is really important. Well, one of the things I get asked for a lot more these days to teach is communication skills, which is not Ooh. the sexiest topic by any means. I mean, people often will line up around the block for a blowjob workshop, but they're not necessarily beating down the door for a how to negotiate with your lover. Uh, but I think that's a really necessary topic because no matter what you experience or explore in your sex life, whether it's, you know, celibacy until marriage or orgies or anything mm-hmm. in between, uh, I think that sexual communication is key to being able to understand all of those things about yourself, about your partners, and about how to make sure that everybody's having a good time. Okay. So they really. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say my favorite maybe is the clitoris because I can get people's interests from a lot of directions that way mm-hmm. just by starting with that one um, commonality because I can, can go into hygiene and I yeah. can go into pleasure and anatomy, physiology, all of that. And I would say one that's important, which I don't think is ta- – about enough is routine infant circumcision, mm, specifically mm-hmm. of the foreskin on penises. So, mm-hmm. all right, let's try and tackle these 22 topics Ooh. that are from a Sexplanation YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the description. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe just share anything you want us to know. And that okay. could be your expectation model, right? Like what to expect and how to navigate it. Sure. Uh, starting with <laughs> vaginismus. All right. Uh, gosh, vaginismus. <laughs> Can you want to share there, Allison? <laughs> I 
I mean, I think that it's it's more common than a lot of people think. I think that whenever anything that sounds scary often makes people feel like they clam up. Uh, but vaginismus is a not uncommon experience for a lot of people. And so there's no shame in going to your doctor and discussing any sort of vaginal pain, any sort of vaginal problems that you might have, uh, because I think it's really helpful to normalize that for yourself and also normalize it for your communities that there's nothing wrong with sometimes needing to go to a doctor about any sort of pelvic issues. Um, and oftentimes it's shame and sexual shame that prevent us from seeking out help that we need. And that goes for vaginismus as much as it goes for trauma and all sorts of trauma responses, as much as it goes for STIs and STDs. The more we can normalize talking to people about these issues, the better off we all are in terms of health, sexually and emotionally. So will you role play with me? Let's say, first I'll ask for consent and wait to hear... Will you role play with me as if I were a clinician and you had the clenching of the vaginal muscles called vaginismus to the point of like not being able to experience penetration comfortably at all? Okay. Thank you. Um, So I am the clinician. You've got this going on. Will you model for the audience how you might talk to me about that without shame? Sure. Yeah. So I've been experiencing some unwanted pain or, I don't know, vaginal contractions when I'm turned on, sometimes when I'm not turned on, but I feel like I really want to be penetrated, but my body won't let me. I'm not quite sure how to deal with that. That was awesome. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, I I would add that, um, so if I was the clinician, oftentimes clinicians will say, okay, let's do an exam, mm-hmm. and they might not have a ton of education around vaginismus, and so they go in there with mm-hmm. an instrument and end up hurting the person. Sure. Is there any language you would use to help people set boundaries for themselves there? Yeah. I mean, so this is always, I mean, negotiating with medical providers is can be really challenging. And I'm not going to pretend that it's not, um, depending on how informed and sensitive your medical provider is. Uh, some people b- might treat you like you're a carburetor and some people might have a uh-huh. lot more sensitivity, right? Um, so, but I would say, you know, generally speaking, telling your clinician very clearly, like, listen, like, I if like, I might have, I have emotional trauma around this, or, you know, I have, I have a history of, of abuse, or um, I just want you to know, I need you to tell me everything you're going to do to my body as you're doing it, mm-hmm. so that I can just kind of emotionally prepare for it. Usually, if you ask a, speci- a clinician a specific thing like that, like, please tell me everything you're doing, a, a good provider will be able to at least step into that. Sometimes they might not know how to deal with something like, hey, I have an abuse history, because mm-hmm. um, that doesn't give them concrete examples of what you need them to do. But if you're able to speak in very clear terms about what you need to have happen for you to feel safe in that environment, like, please tell me what you're about to do. Please tell me if you're, please show me whatever instruments you want to put on or in me before you do so. Uh, that can really be an easy way to communicate clearly your boundaries and needs around that stuff. Yeah. And, and if you are not able to have instruments come anywhere near your body that it, it if it's that triggering to you or that painful I think mm-hmm. it's also okay to say can you do a visual exam without any contact and um, hopefully the provider will work with you from there to solutions mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah Absolutely. okay next topic kind of related visiting a gynecologist cool uh, yeah, I mean, I, I went to my first gynecologist, I think, when I was 16 years old. Um, and yeah, I think that same similar kinds of things, like a lot of people have a whole wide range of issues and concerns with 
any sort of medicalization of their bodies in general. Um, I was a science nerd from a young age, so I was really excited to, to go to the gynecologist <laughs> and, le- and learn about what they were doing because uh, I thought it was cool. Um, and I, I liked learning about that stuff. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, uh, going to a gynecologist, they're going to ask you questions about your sex life, about your periods. Um, they're going to ask you if you have any pain, if you have any issues that are bringing you to see them. Um, and then with them, you can negotiate getting a pap smear, which is, you know, depending on how long, how often you have them, uh, depending on how old you are, could or could not happen. Um, you can discuss with them any sort of contraception interests that you have, any sort of STI concerns you might have, getting tested for STIs. And often, generally speaking, depending on how informed your gynecologist is, you can often have sex conversations with them as well about things that you're interested in doing or things that you have concerns about. And again, depending on their own comfort and their own education on sexuality, they should be able to at least help you get a sense of how to make better choices for your own body. Have you ever had a gynecologist offer you a mirror to look at your cervix? What an interesting question. No, but I did get a a pap smear once in Mexico and they used an endoscopic camera in my vagina (gasps) while they were doing it. So I got to see my cervix up on a big screen right in front of me and it was super cool. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, I was really excited about that. Apparently in in that office, that was the standard procedure. Um, And I was so, I was so like chuffed about that. That was super cool. Oh, good job, Mexico. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Next topic, HPV, human papillomavirus. Sure. So, yeah, HPV is kind of one of, I mean, like a lot of STIs is one of those very misunderstood afflictions. Um, But what I think is important to know about HPV is that um, if you can get um, Gardasil, I -hmm. recommend getting Gardasil. and a lot of HPV, like a lot of different uh, viruses, your body can clear them on their own, uh, but it's helpful for your doctor to know what's going on. And this is why pap smears have been kind of moved from every one year to every two years to every four years, depending on how healthy you are. Um, sometimes it's helpful if you get an abnormal pap or if you are diagnosed with HPV, just to have your doctor be able to monitor it to make sure that it doesn't it isn't one of the strains that can turn into cervical cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why it's just really important for you to be proactive around your sexual health and, you know, getting pap smears as regularly as are recommended. Um, And then there are also the strains of HPV that can cause genital warts. And again, genital warts are not a huge concern, but they are something that you should be aware of and how to deal with them should you be test positive for them. Um, But generally speaking, genital warts are um, a skin affliction and they can be painful and they can be um, unsightly, but ultimately they are not necessarily a death sentence. So as long as you are proactive with your health, you should be generally okay with negotiating all the different things around HPV that that may turn up. So you're saying Gardasil, the vaccine for HPV, for mm-hmm. some strains, mm-hmm. um, encouraging people to get that in advance if they can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, usually that's recommended between the ages of 11 and 26. There's three doses of it that, at least at this time, uh, are needing to be administered. And then in terms of it being an STI, when you ask for it to get tested, a lot of places don't test for it because mm. my understanding is that if a person is, I'm going to say biosex male rather than assigned male at birth because it's more about their reproductive anatomy mm. uh, or maybe I'll, sure, people who have mm. penises mm-hmm. um, don't show up on an HPV test. Is that mm-hmm. correct? As far as I know, there is no uniform tests that they are give, that clinicians can give to people with penises. That may have changed in the past year, but I believe it's still the case that they don't test penis owners for HPV. Penis so, owners. Yeah, yeah, penis owners. <laughs> but they so, could get anal. 
HPV. Absolutely. We all can. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so, yeah, if you are concerned about that, that's something. If you if you engage in receptive anal sex, it's a great idea to let your doctor know that so that they can give you an anal swab. Um, that's one of those things that is really rarely tested for, even among people who are out as, you know, queer or bi or, or gay men who are receptive uh, anal sex participants. Uh, so oftentimes they will not necessarily give that test unless you, if you ask for it. This is actually very common in a lot of H or in a lot of STI panels is that there's a standard set of things that they'll test you for at your doctor's office, but you have to often request more of them. So for instance, if you have a friend who had a herpes outbreak and you are now wondering if you caught herpes, uh, you would often have to ask for the blood test before mm -hmm. a doctor would give it to you. Um, Usually a standard SDI panel at your doctor's office will include the bacterial infections like um, syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia, um, but for, and, and HIV. But um, anything beyond that, usually you have to make a special request for. So it's just, this is why it's really helpful to be in communication with your sex partners about things that you... Uh, they should be aware of. And at the same time, it's really helpful for, for you to be forthright with your doctors because, you know, not, a lot of doctors don't necessarily assume things about your sex life. And it's helpful um, for you to be, you know, for, forthright about what you feel like you actually are at risk for so that they can know how to test for you. Have you had any negative experiences asking for additional tests? I have. Um, I had at one point when I was asking about getting Gardasil, um, they, my, the nurse practitioner asked me how many sex partners I had had. And I told her honestly, and she actually made a little bit of a shameful sound about it because uh, it was far more than the three that they specify for Gardasil applications, which was frustrating. Um, and I have also been... Uh, I've gone to STI testing in at clinics specifically for um, sex workers or LGBT people, and I have because I am I'm assuming a what they see in me is a cisgender educated white woman who doesn't have survival sex, they assume that that means that I don't also have sex with sex workers or that I don't um, have sex with people who are using IV drugs. I've had a lot of people react to me with assumptions. And I know that assumptions are a really big problem for a lot of people when they go to seek treatment for anything. Uh, your clinician might look at you and decide what they think you need, which may be not at all what you actually do need. And um, this can be range and just kind of annoying to treat truly offensive to truly fr frustrating and frightening, depending on your relationship with that clinician. Um, so I've definitely encountered that myself. And usually what I say is, hi, yes, I, I don't have survival sex, but I do have sex with sex workers, which is ultimately, I think, what you're trying to find out, right? Um, or, you know, I do have sex with uh, men who have sex with men, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I do have sex with women who have sex with, and I have sex with transgender people. So it's like being clear about like who I'm actually sleeping with, because sometimes that's, a, that's for their grant application. Sometimes they get funded based on their stats. And so for me to say like, actually, these are the genders of people I have sex with. Um, please don't assume that I'm a straight woman because you might read me as straight, for instance. Um, Sometimes it's it's just as innocuous as they just kind of make assumptions because they're checking off boxes on a form. But sometimes it can be that they are not. I would not get the the treatment that I need uh, um, unless I specifically tell them what I need. Okay, so can you go back and tell me what survival sex means to you? Sure. So survival sex is a, a phrase used um, in terms of discussing sex work, where for people who um, might be living on the streets or might be experiencing homelessness in other ways or just experiencing financial uh, 
like poverty experiences, um, oftentimes people will have what's known as survival sex or survival sex work, where they will be ha- exchanging sex for money specifically to get enough money to maybe make it through that day, that week, to buy a room for the night. Uh, this is not necessarily a business. This is more of a, a, a way for them to get through the day. Um, so that's what I say, survival sex. And so oftentimes this is a phrase that's used in grant funding. It's a phrase used in public health programs to, I think, draw demographics around um, the choices that m- some people might make and the w- the willingness some people might have to engage in risky or riskier sex based on their financial need. So it's e- it's easier for a person who does n- who's not in deep financial need to, for instance, exert strong boundaries around self-care and around STI prevention. But for somebody who's willing, who needs to make money really badly, they might say, maybe, okay, it's fine. You don't have to use a condom this time, for instance. Um, and that creates a, a level of risk assessment that's helpful for some clinicians to be aware of. Okay. And you believe that they could ask the question about whether or not you're having sex with sex workers and come to a similar risk assessment? Well, I mean, I think some of the questions are codified already. Some of the questions are given by the state and federal government, Mm. and the clinicians don't really have a choice. Um, But I think some of those questions should be interrogated a little bit. And so for me, again, that, that question is like, you ask me if I have if I have sex with sex workers, um, I'm going to say yes. Um, but I'm not paying those sex workers to have sex with them. I'm not a client of theirs. I'm a lover of theirs. Um, and so those are, that will give them a kind of an interesting difference in answer, right? If they're looking to talk to people who are paying for sex, uh, that's different from looking to talk to people who have sex with sex workers. Those aren't necessarily the same person. Um, And so I have, because I have the patients and I'm already a sexual educator, um, I'm willing to have those conversations with clinicians about like, what are you actually asking me right now, right? Are you asking me if I've exchanged sex for money, because I needed to? Are you asking if I've done it for fun? Are you asking if I've done it because um, I have people in my life that I love are sex workers? Uh, those are all very different things. Yes. Okay. Are you familiar with a website that will ask the more specific questions so that a person could essentially take a quiz to find out what to ask their clinician to test them for? I don't. Not off the top of my head. No. Let's make one. <laughs> yes, do it. Do it. <laughs> Right? It seems like it needs to exist where you could specifically ask someone very detailed, accurate questions Mm -hmm. to figure out what they may or might not want to get tested for. Right. And this is very, this is one of the ways in which labels can be kind of challenging, especially in medical experiences, because, um, you know, I've, I remember for a long time, I only slept with women. I was lesbian identified. Um, and there are a lot of questions about, you know, or sexual orientation sometimes when you're doing an intake with a, with a doctor. Um, so I can say that I'm a lesbian. I only have sex with women, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all the women I sleep with don't have penises or only have vulvas, right? So if you want to know if I engage in penetrative sex with penises, that's different from asking if I sleep with women or men. Yeah. And that's, I think, like, medicine is trying to get there. I don't think they're there yet. And this is where it becomes, I think the onus becomes on sex positive people or people who can have the facility with their language to say, like, what exactly, like, excuse me, doctor, what exactly do you mean when you say, do you have sex with men? Or, uh, you know, what do you do you engage in sex work? What do you mean by that? What kind of sex work? You know, um, because if you're trying to figure out what I'm at risk for health wise, those are you're going to I think you're going to want to ask more specific questions. So good. <laughs> so very, 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 very good. Um, so 
you've essentially covered some of these other topics that I was going to bring up. We have getting tested, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. Anything that you would add to those? No, I mean, again, like I, I enjoy getting tested. I think it's something that you can do with friends or with lovers. And so if you can turn it into a fun day as opposed to like, oh, no, oh, no, here I am going to get tested. Like you can just like go get tested and then go get ice cream, go get boba <laughs> afterwards. Like I think the more we can normalize it, the better it is. And um, I, I don't mind. I mean, oftentimes it's just a pee test. Sometimes I'll do a blood test. Um, but a lot of these STI tests are, are much less frightening than sometimes people might assume. So Getting tested is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Vibrators? Big fan. Big, big fan. Cock rings? Uh, also a big fan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so vibrators, oh gosh, they come in so many shapes and sizes. There's so many different things. Um, again, vibrators can be used on all sorts of genitals in all sorts of ways. And I encourage people with penises to explore vibrators, both alone and with partners. Adding a vibrator to a sexual experience solo or with partners is always, or not always, but is often a really good idea. Um, cock rings are, can be really fun. Um, they can also be kind of intimidating. I think you mentioned this on your last video that you want to practice with the stretchy ones, which I think is a really good thing. But a lot of people I know enjoy the feeling of having sex with a cock ring or just wearing one. Sometimes it can just feel fun to, and sexy to kind of wear one underneath your clothes for a little while, just to enjoy a little bit of the turgidity as you, as you enjoy your day. Um, but yeah, cock rings can be a lot of fun in general. I'm grinning. That's so wonderful. <laughs> I love that so much. Uh, what about polycystic ovarian syndrome, which I did end up doing a full video on. Anything okay. you would add there? Um, I didn't see that video, so I'm sure you were very thorough. Um, but I yeah, tried. I mean, I, I think that a lot of people, again, don't necessarily know how very common it is. And a lot of people just have cysts and that's just part of your lives. Um, one of the things I, I do have ovarian cysts and the way that it in, entered my life is that I would have really not random periods, but I would have my period every three to four months. Um, and so that's just the way it manifested in my life. Um, but it never caused any pain or concerns. And so my doctors, again, just they're aware that they're there. Every once in a while, they'll check. If I'm having abdominal pain, they'll want to double check that there's not some problems with the cysts, but otherwise it's fine. And the only other way it manifests in my life that I know of is I get these little chin hairs that drive me crazy. But, you know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. They are they are linked, I believe. F facial yes. hair in in, in, uh, in women and and polyovarian cystic. Here's, yeah. It's called hirsutism, right? Yes. H-I-R-S-U-T-I-S-M. Yeah. Hairyism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, polyamory. Big fan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm a polyamorous person. I am in a relationship with... Well, I'm in a relationship with a lot of people, but I my primary relationship is with Reen Mahalko, and he and I have been together for 12 years, and I have a girlfriend uh, named Sandra, and we've been together for four years, and I have a lot of other sweeties around, and I I love it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. I don't remember um, when it came up, if it was on the podcast or video or s somewhere, I had said to someone that I wished monogamy was less popular. Mm. Not that I, I yeah. need it to go away. I just... It would be nice if non-monogamy was um, just out in the open. Everybody's enjoying it without shame if they yeah. want that in their lives. 
Yeah, I went out with my partner, Reaver, in New York, and I went out with him the other night to see a friend of ours play at a, a local bar. And I saw him. I was so excited to see him. And I just started to smooching him. And he started smooching me. And we started making out. And my partner's standing right there. And I had this moment of realizing in that moment that like, a bunch of people in this bar have, might not know what's going on. They're seeing this woman walk in with a, her husband and then start kissing another man. I'm like, right. Like, that's, I'm so used to that being my life and that. I'm allowed to do that. Mm. And, you know, like I have dates with people while I'm traveling. My partner is going back home and he's got a sleepover with somebody. And I really couldn't imagine my life any other way. Specifically for me, because I, I love being able to take every relationship on its own terms. I love not having to create rules about how I'm allowed to interact with everyone else on the planet because of my relationship with one person on the planet. And so for me, it re works really well because my partner and I are on the same page and the people, the lovers in our lives, the sweeties that we have are all pretty much on the same page as well. And for us now it becomes an opportunity for every relationship to negotiate based on what is right for that relationship, not necessarily the rules that are imposed by some sort of social structure that I never really opted into in the first place. Are you going to write a poly book? polyam book? I don't know. There are a lot of polyamory books out there. Um, I don't know if I need to add more to it. I think that the casual sex book that I'm writing, though, will have a lot of good skill sets for people who are in non-monogamous relationships because the whole point of discussing casual sex is being able to negotiate like what you're allowed to do with yourself and where your boundaries are with yourself and how to communicate your own personal needs with everyone in your like sweetie constellation, right? Mm, yes. um, and being able to have those conversations about expectations and needs and boundaries, um, that's the stuff that applies to everybody in relationship, but it's really important for people who are engaging in multiple sexual or sensual relationships with multiple people. Uh, oh, you make it so good. <laughs> I mean, I don't make it easy, but I can make it sound easy. <laughs> It's, it's so nice. It's so refreshing to have people talk openly, freely, um, mm -hmm. happily about their relationships, whatever those dynamics are. So thanks mm -hmm. for sharing that. My pleasure. I, I couldn't imagine my life any other way. My partner and I were just negotiating a threesome tonight and we're inviting somebody over for a threesome. And I'm just like, I'm in so in love with you. You're so in love with me. We get to share our, our bodies and our brains with another person tonight together. How wonderful is that? Yeah, so. <laughs> that's what I was thinking earlier, actually, when you were talking about him being okay with you um, smooching this other person. In my experience of the two of you, he's not just okay with it. He is so into it and really happy for yeah. you. Almost, yeah. Yeah. In that compersive way of like, oh, yeah, and yes. Compersion is one of the best feelings on the planet. If you can feel happy when your partner's enjoying themselves with another person, I really think that that's like the secret to long longevity. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see how many more of these we can get through. Demisexuality. Yeah, sure. Demisexuality. A lot more common than I think people thought. It's one of those things that existed so much before um, before we had a word for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so when people hear the word demisexual in the definition, they're like, oh, I think I might be demi. I think a lot of people have that experience. The best way I heard to describe demisexuality, and this was really unique to me. I talked to, uh, I think, a, a writer named Lev Rosen about this, where 
the the way he had heard demisexual described was if you don't have crushes on celebrities, like if you could watch a, I don't know, Marvel movie and not want to bang any of the people on that screen, you might be demisexual, (laughs) right? Exactly. Everybody's got their favorite, which is totally the point. But for people who couldn't imagine meeting any of those people in real life and then wanting to have sex with them, oftentimes those people might be demisexual because they're not, they need to know somebody personally before they feel comfortable sharing sexuality with somebody or they need to know somebody really well before they feel comfortable sharing sexuality as opposed to I might meet somebody and like within 20 minutes I'm like hey you're cute I'm cute let's go be cute together yeah Uh, demisexuals often do not have that experience of, of relationships and so that definition really helped me understand demisexuality okay what about bisexuality bisexuality Horribly misunderstood term for a wonderful thing. Uh, So bisexuality, people hear the prefix bi and they often think two and then it reinforces the gender binary. Mm -hmm. This is not true. The actual definition of bisexual is attraction to my own gender and attraction to other genders. Um, So again, heterosexuality is attraction to other gender. Homosexuality is attraction to same gender. Bisexuality is both of those things. Um, so oftentimes you'll hear pansexuality, sometimes omnisexual sexuality. Those are all kind of variations on a theme. But bisexuality means attraction to people of your gender and other genders. And I'm a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> all right, BDSM? BDSM, yeah. Uh, compound acronym describing a whole range of things that people might like to do together. Most of the time, I think of it as adult playtime uh, because it, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> it encompasses a bunch of different activities. And some of it can be like super serious, mean, blah, blah, blah. And some of it can be really silly. Um, but BDSM often has this misunderstanding that it's always just Fifty Shades of Grey, leather and whips and red rooms, um, which it can be, but it can also be clown orgies, or it can be really ridiculous role play, or it can be spanking on the bottom during sex because it feels really good, or it can be playing with, you know, fuzzy fun cuffs or rope or all these different things. Um, But generally speaking, it's just, I think of it as ways to add additional flavors to a sexual experience. And sometimes you can add it into a sexual experience that involves genital touch. and But BDSM can also be incredibly emotionally and sexually satisfying without genitals being involved at all. So for people who aren't necessarily keen on exploring genital touch, um, you can still have a lot of fun sensual play with people involving BDSM techniques. So you had said it was adult playtime, mm-hmm. which I think is a, a great definition of it. Uh, But what about people who are experiencing that kind of paraphilia or drive to something kinky before adulthood? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm using adult in the framework of like, you know, sexual, right? Yeah. So yes, absolutely. People can experience some of the most kinky, amazing people that I've known have known since they were kids that they were into something that sexual that might wasn't very normative. I have friends who tied up their teddy bears, right? Wow. I, yeah, and I have friends who would, when they would play with their friends as children, would want to be the damsel in distress tied to the train tracks uh, because she really wanted to experience being tied up, uh, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, so yes, these things can appear very early in life. Again, we're, we don't become sexual at 18 years old. Human beings are sexual <laughs> from birth, right? Um, yeah. And it's just a matter of boundaries, safety, and legality, and all the complications that, add, that society adds to our sexuality. But yes, there are children who are very aware of their bodies and very aware of sensuality and how things feel good. Um, So it's entirely possible that maybe you as a child really liked sucking on a leather glove. And now as an adult or as a teenager, you're kind of finding yourself 
attracted to leather. Uh, that's a very common thing. Uh, or shoes or any of these different things that you can find are sexy. Um, and again, for me, the takeaway is we in our society have this very narrow idea of what sexy should look like. And ultimately, that is not the, the case for humanity. Humans find sex in all things, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not hurting anyone or hurting yourself. And so if we can explore the various ways our bodies can feel good or our minds can get excited, um, a lot of that will fall under BDSM. And you can just explore that by just reading about it and looking at stuff online all the way up to exploring it in, in real life, depending on your comfort level and the safety. <sighs> So validating. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it's really important. And a lot of this doesn't get said in short um, Sexplanations YouTube videos. So I'm so grateful that you're giving people permission to be who they are and providing resources for that and then writing entire books so that they <laughs> have a guide for their sexuality or or not just write like it doesn't look one way, but for a guide for exploring their sexuality because mm -hmm. But you have done amazingly. Yeah, thanks. I feel like that's the thing that girl, people liked it so much about Girl Sex 101 was it gave people permission to to feel things or to think things or to explore for themselves. And that's really my job is to give people the crayon box that they can draw their own pictures with. But I want them to know what's available out there so that they can go play. Yeah, Allison, <laughs> you're totally doing that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. Okay, so... Let's let the rest of the topics exist in space and time um, because I would like to shift to doing kegels with you. Oh, sure. Feel your kegels if you're able. squeeze. Uh, do you have a particular way that you like to do them? I mean, just, just the good old-fashioned clenching. Uh, let me see. I should probably sit up straight. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. I'm ready when you are. Okay. Would you like me to count? We'll, sure. we'll do maybe a, a count up to eight and then hold them for eight and then a count down of eight. So I'm going to clench all the way up to eight, hold for eight, and then release on a count of eight. Yes. Right? Okay. It's almost okay. like your pubic coccygeus muscles of the pelvic flooring is building an elevator and like squeezing it or squeezing toothpaste out and up and uh -huh. then holding it and then trying to push it back into the toothpaste. Okay. Ooh, fun. I'm already trying it. This is exciting. All right, let's do it. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hold eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one and down, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Ooh, that was fun. interesting. On the down ones, I was actually pushing out. So rather than clenching mm -hmm. in, I was pushing the muscles outward. That's great. That's how I learned how to squirt. Yeah, get yeah. it. Yeah, learning how to invert that energy that often vagina owners will pull when we when we come when we orgasm, but or squeeze up. But learning how to invert that and actually relax those muscles in order is actually I think it's a it's a harder skill set, but I think it's really great because then you can really learn how to relax and expand. Oh, we could talk about squirting for <laughs> days. 
<laughs> awesome. Next time. I'm also a big fan. <laughs> so good. Uh, any extra credit homework you want to give the audience? Assignments are not always bad, so here's some extra credit. Ooh, extra credit. I mean, my number one, masturbate. And oh. ma- <laughs> if you if you already masturbate, masturbate in a new way. Um, so for people. I think like it's one of the best things, especially if you want to learn how to enjoy pleasure from another person's touch. If you're especially if you're kind of maybe if you're not having sex with partners yet, um, learning how to masturbate in a lot of different ways so you can learn to get your genitals attuned to different kinds of touch can be really helpful. That is so generous of you. <laughs> I would have thought, oh, yeah, read my book. I'm, I'm, oh, I'll assign no. that for everyone. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. Read Alison Moon's book, yeah. Girl Sex 101, and all the other ones that she mentioned, which we'll list in the description. But um, I love that you want them to have the experience of masturbation more, Heck right? Yeah. If, they're, yeah. if they're already doing that. Yeah, if somewhere. you don't already do it, try it in some small way that makes you feel safe and yummy. Uh, if you're already doing it, God bless, and try it in a new way. Is there a specific technique that you might throw in there as a variable for them? Well, I mean, it's classic, but I think a lot of people don't, they, they do not appreciate the true power of the, uh, of the bathtub faucet. So a lot of people <laughs> for, with clitorises should explore, experience the bathtub faucet. And if you're a penis owner, I, I do recommend trying a vibrator, uh, just putting a vibrator on your on your penis, on the shaft, on the, on the tip, uh, sometimes putting up the vibrator, putting your penis on uh, like a pillow and then putting it a vibrator on top. <laughs> I love it so much. Thank you for hanging out with me on this Explanations podcast. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. You're so awesome. So wonderful. Oh, it's so great. Um, please check out Allison's books and find her on the internet. We're going to put all sorts of links in the description, but I, I would love everyone to know about you because you're so incredible at what you do and you provide an outlet for people who are staying curious. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you also to Cinema Studios for production, Complexly for production, and Count Boogie for the jingles, and Cora and Parl, I'm Still Learning. Mm-hmm.